Jesus arrived in a world that was in political turmoil, and some were saying, make Israel great again. Others were saying, Israel first, and still more saying, drain the swamp. Now, there were some differences between uh, then and now. For one, they mixed up religion and politics. There was no separation of church and state. In theory, God was their king. Uh, Although at the moment, the Romans were in charge, and for for many, that created a crisis of faith. How could they be God's chosen people when they're ruled by a pagan oppressor? To make matters worse, the religious authorities who were in charge during that time were corrupt. The average person in the street just wanted the bums to throw, be, throw the bums out. Israel's glory days had been all the way back when David and Solomon were king and in charge. Uh, David had expanded the borders, provided them with political and military stability. Solomon built the very first temple, and for years they lived with the legacy of those two great leaders. But it didn't last combination of wicked kings, of religious unfaithfulness, and geopolitical turmoil left Israel in a hard place, and many despaired. Others, though, held out hope, because some of Israel's greatest leaders were those that the people recognized as prophets, who predicted that one day a new leader would come. Someone would come on the scene, God would reveal his glory in maybe a cosmic display of fireworks, whether it's literal or metaphorical. That leader would seize the reins of power, would drive out the Romans, drain the swamp of the morally and politically corrupt leaders, and make Israel great again. And they'd been waiting for this leader for decades, actually for much longer than that. This was the one that they called the Messiah. But he had still not come. And if they ever needed a God to come through for them, they thought, this is the time. And yet they waited and they wondered whether he would ever come or would God simply continue to humiliate them in front of their pagan enemies. Those are the expectations that were in the air when Jesus arrived on the scene. And then he started doing and saying things that had echoes of those predictions the prophets had talked about. And they began to wonder, was he the one who was to come? Some even asked him directly. And he answered, although his answer was a little evasive. Sometimes he'd say yes, and really what he was saying was, yes, I am, but I'm not the one who's come exactly the way that you anticipated. Now, the moment when those nationalistic expectations reached their peak was on Palm Sunday. That's when a crowd welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And that event happened just before the story that we're going to look at today. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem had all the marks of a popular revolution. Many expected Jesus at that point to gather an army, fight a surprise battle, drive out the Romans, take over the temple, and be crowned king. Even his disciples expected him to set up some sort of earthly kingship. In fact, they wanted him to, and they all wanted top jobs in his administration to boot. But Jesus had a different plan for the kingdom of God, a different vision of what it might look like. He talked about it often, and his followers, though, had a hard time understanding it. It wouldn't be until much later that they put, kind of connected all the dots. Now, in the week that followed Palm Sunday, things went not at all the way they anticipated. It would end with Jesus on a cross. But in the midst of all of that, it, meant it led many to reject Jesus, although some hold, held out some hope. But everyone had a choice to make, and that is how they would view Jesus. Would they be in or out on him? It was then that, that, the, uh, that uh, and by the way, it wasn't just Jews who were checking Jesus out. Even before Jesus arrived on the scene, there were some from the surrounding nations who were attracted to the Jewish way of life. By the way, there's a notion that we uh, might ought challenge, and that is that the idea of a happy pagan. 
Some today are sentimental about the pagan religious practices that were even in play at the time that Jesus was living in other nations. But the daily life for people in those nations was not the utopian reality that many imagine. The religions weren't full, for example, of as much mercy as Judaism was. That might surprise you, but it was true. Most of those in the surrounding nations tolerated poverty, disease, starvation, homelessness. They had gladiatorial spectacles and crucifixions, infanticide, abortion, public execution of captives and criminals. They allowed tyranny and injustice and depravity and cruelty. And that made the moral standards and moral position of Jews attractive to many. So there were those who came in among the nation who were what you call God-fears. That's what they called them. These were people who were not Jews but were attracted to the Jewish way of life. Now, eventually, one of the things we know is that there were those who also would then be attracted to Christianity, that the gospel of grace and the ethic of love attracted them to Christian faith. John tells us that Jesus, in this moment, attracted some who were, who were Greeks who came to see Jesus. Last week, we began a new series on the second half of John's biography of Jesus, and we're calling this John on Jesus. And as I mentioned last week, there are really three sections we're going to deal with in the coming months. And the first has to do with reactions, varied reactions to Jesus himself. That's what we're going to look at today. The second section, which will begin in a couple of weeks, um, is an account of a long conversation, a long, wide-ranging conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And then we'll move on to talk about Jesus' death and his resurrection, the story that we call the Great Reversal. Now, this week's story is one of those reactions to Jesus' stories. And just a quick heads up, I'm going to read it in a moment. Um, But the story begins with these Greeks that I mentioned, the ones who um, came asking to be introduced to Jesus. So you'll hear them say that, and then when they're introduced, you'll think, whoa, Jesus does something kind of strange here. His reaction's odd. Instead, Instead of engaging them in conversation, he launches into a speech, a bold statement about himself. What he says is cryptic, so we'll need to unpack it, but um, what I want to do is read this story, and then we'll talk a bit about it. It's in John chapter 12. We're going to begin with verse 20, and if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1638, 1638, although the words will also be on the screen. So let's read from John chapter 12, again, beginning with verse 20. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said it was an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not for mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show what the kind of death that he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard this from the law, that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you still have the light so that you may become children of light. And when he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. If you were paying attention, you may have noticed that this encounter began, as I have already mentioned, in a little bit of a strange fashion. Jesus, or John tells us that these Greeks who were in town for the Passover came, um, and they came to see Jesus. Now, not all the Jews liked having foreigners in their midst. There is a xenophobic streak in the national character of Israel at the time. That's why I said earlier, Israel first. That's what some of them would have said. But these Greeks came anyway, and when they heard Jesus or heard about him, they came to Philip and said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And that's where this gets strange, at least a little bit weird, because instead of saying, oh, wonderful, great to meet you, do you have any questions? Um, Instead, what he launches into is a strange speech that has nothing to do with why they came in the first place. It's a speech about seeds and plants, about life and death and light and dark, And it's almost like he's a politician who's asked a question he doesn't want to answer, so he answers a question he wishes they had answered. Um, But he starts in this way. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the hour he's talking about is not really a specific time of the day. You know, it's not like he's saying 7 o'clock at night or 12 noon. Instead, he's talking about the appointed time or the right time. It's a little bit like a coach before, say, the Super Bowl, who says to his players, it's game time. He's not saying it's 5.30 on a Sunday afternoon. What he's saying is it is the most significant moment. It's that moment when they'll play the, the biggest game of their lives. And the glorification he's talking about is his death on the cross. In other words, Jesus is saying the way I'm going to honor you, glorify you, is by carrying out the mission that you've given me, and that is to die on a cross. And Jesus clarifies this by using a metaphor. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, this would have been very familiar because largely they were still in a more agrarian culture than we're used to. We have one or 2% of the population that produces all the food. In those days, it would have been well more than 50% of the people in the nation would have been growing crops. So this is a metaphor that would have made sense. That a seed dies, it falls into the ground, it germinates at the right time, springs to life, and produces a crop. Now, it's just a metaphor, but later, people would understand what Jesus was talking about. That Jesus' death on a Roman cross at first would look like a full-blown tragedy. After such great promise, after raising such high hopes, Jesus would look like a failure. At least that's the way that it looked on Friday evening and all day on Saturday until Sunday morning came, when first to a few women and then to some of his closest friends, including John, the one who wrote this biography, and then others, he would show that he was not dead, but he actually was alive. He'd risen from the dead. So they would then understand that what he was talking about is the death was the seed that fell into the ground, germinated. His resurrection is when it took root. And then growing into a mature plant, it produced a bountiful crop, which they understood were all those who would be followers of Jesus. And that included both Jews and Greeks. So what started as a failure on Friday afternoon became a victory on Sunday morning for all of humanity. Now, immediately, Jesus points to an implication of all of this, and that is that Jews and Greeks, 
and all of us really need to decide whether we are going to love our lives and our self-centeredness more than we're going to love God. He says, do you love your life? Then you'll need to lose it. In fact, you'll need to hate your life in this world in order to keep it for eternity. So if you want to be connected to God, you need to set aside your own selfish ambition, live the life that God has modeled or Jesus has modeled for us, and then God will honor us. Now, he wasn't saying that you're to live then a joyless and dull and drab existence. What he is confronting is the tendency that we all have to put our own interests at the center of our lives, to put our own ambition or love of comfort or desire for security above God, to love ourselves more than we love God. He says it's only in putting God first in our lives that we will find our lives. It's in following Jesus wholeheartedly and trusting him that we will experience what God has for us. And when we do, we'll discover that all that we're asked to give up really pales in comparison to what we're going to receive. But this is a point when Jesus had to make a decision. He knew what God had asked of him, but it was not easy. Obedience, by the way, is never easy. And some of you have children, and you know this. There are things that you can ask your kids that they will readily do. If you say, you know, hey, listen, it's, it's dinner time, and they're hungry, and it's Taco Tuesday, they're all in. That's no problem for them. But if you, they don't want to do something, they'll act like they didn't hear you. They'll come up with excuses, argue, or even flat out refuse to do what you're asking them to do. Now, if that sounds a little unsettling, like Jesus was somehow a little child who resisted God, that's not exactly what's going on. But it is true that he had to make decisions to obey, even when it was very difficult. What God was asking him to do was the best thing for all of humanity, but it was also extremely difficult. So Jesus, John tells us, was deeply troubled. And it says, Father, save me from this hour. Now that may remind you of another story of the life of Jesus. It would actually take place just a few days later when Jesus is in a garden and he's praying to his Father in heaven and asks that he, asks that he be um, freed from having to go to his death on the cross. And both times he recognized that to turn his back on this thing that God was asking him to do would contradict the entire purpose for his life. And so, no, he said, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. By the way, some have thought that John made a mistake. They've thought, oh, wait a second, didn't that experience with God, asking God to be released from what was ahead, didn't that happen in the Garden of Gethsemane? And it couldn't have happened twice. Although I think the right answer is that Jesus faced this question repeatedly during his lifetime. It wasn't just once. It even wasn't just twice. It was probably a daily decision to be obedient, knowing what was ahead. What Jesus faced here was not an isolated crisis. It was a lifelong temptation and decision to obey what um, God had asked of him. And I think there's a parallel in our own lives. Sometimes we focus on the big momentous decisions that we need to make as if we only have to make them once when often even the big decisions are a culmination of a lifetime of making a series of small decisions. Those small decisions add up to something bigger. Sometimes we do have to make a momentous decision, but often even that decision has a number of other smaller decisions behind it. But it's still tempting in all situations to ask for a way out because Jesus knew the danger that was ahead. He also knew, though, that it was through that danger that God's glory would shine out to the whole world. So even though he's troubled, in obedience he says, Father, glorify your name. I think here Jesus is courageous in the full sense of the word. Courage, real courage doesn't mean that we aren't afraid. It doesn't mean that we're not facing danger or pain. 
What it means is to be afraid and yet still do the thing that God is asking of each of us. And when Jesus made this decision, we're told that a voice spoke from heaven. It said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Then it says that the crowd heard it and said that it had thundered, and others said that an angel had spoken. And you may get confused here. You're thinking, well, I thought some of them heard a voice that said, I've glorified it and will glorify it again. Others heard thunder. Others heard an angel. Which is it? And the answer is it depends. The answer depends is, the real answer is that God did speak, the problem is, is that not all of them were willing to listen. If they didn't ask or they didn't listen with the right attitude, and when they didn't, they weren't able to hear. And so they understood it just as some, some random noise like thunder, or they thought they heard an angel, but they didn't hear God. And that's sometimes the trouble for us as well. It's not that God doesn't speak, it's that we're not willing to listen. I'm not suggesting that we should expect to hear audible voices. But I do believe, and I've experienced times when God has prompted me through his Holy Spirit, might be uh, reading the Bible or praying or, or just simply obeying and beginning to sense that the Spirit is prompting me to understand something I've not previously understood, to think about or to do something that I've not necessarily thought about before. So our ability to hear from God is dependent upon how willing we are to listen. Now, all of this is, uh, culminates with being, Jesus being affirmed by God. Jesus tells them that what he's about to do is to accomplish two things. And he talks first about judgment, particularly judging Satan, and then bringing salvation to all of humanity. So let's talk first about the judgment he talks about. He says, now is the time that the prince of this world will be driven out. Now, this is sort of the God version of drain the swamp. What he's saying is, is that up until now, Satan's had free reign. Satan's had great influence over the world. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's about to change. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, God declared a death sentence on Satan. But what's confusing is we know that our experience doesn't match with that. If Satan's been defeated, why is it that we still experience um, temptations, Times when Satan tries to trick or seduce us. So we know he's alive and well. But what this is saying is that Satan's ultimate power over us has been defeated. If we trust Christ, we have a new power within us, the power of the good news, the power of the Holy Spirit, and God can and will transform our lives, our hearts, and our desires. A couple of weeks ago, Amy talked about a prayer that Jesus gave his disciples. They had come said, and said to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he gave us a prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. And in that, there's one phrase that says, lead us not into temptation. And what that is, is an honest prayer that reflects the fact that Satan is still active. He's still around. He can still tempt us. But we're also acknowledging and affirming that if we're connected to God, we're connected to someone who is infinitely more powerful than Satan. So it's a prayer we ought to pray every day. Any moment when we face some significant difficulty in our lives, we had to pray knowing that God is more powerful than Satan. Now, eventually, Satan will be finally defeated. When Jesus returns, that will be complete. But in the meantime, we're in an in-between time. Now, judgment here isn't the end of the story because Jesus then says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And then he, John himself adds an editorial comment that says, this was what Jesus said to show the kind of death that he was about to die. In other words, this death on the cross. Now, Jesus didn't come to overthrow the political structure of his day. His kingdom was to be a different sort of kingdom, the kingdom of God. It was not a political kingdom. 
It would be the kingdom of the cross, the ones who, of those who worship the, the person who was lifted up, who would draw all of humanity to himself. And we have been able to see the fulfillment of that because decade by decade, century by century, millennium by millennium, this prediction has been fulfilled. And it's an inclusive vision. When Jesus died on the cross, what he did is opened up the kingdom of God to all of humanity, Jews, Greeks, and us. It's a big deal. Jesus let them know that he wasn't just for the Jews. This isn't make Israel great again. It's to make all of humanity great again. Jesus is for the whole world. And it's an invitation issued to people everywhere. But it's an invitation that we must respond to, to receive the invitation that Jesus offers us, to find peace and meaning and purpose and strength and hope in a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that comes by faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection. When we started today, I mentioned that the conversation that Jesus has with these Greeks begins in an awkward manner, but I also said that I thought eventually it would make sense. So let me tell you how I think it does. These Greeks came to see Jesus, perhaps hoping to have a long conversation about philosophy and religion, but Jesus knew what they most needed to understand was that in just a few days, he would die on a cross, that he would show that he had defeated sin and death by rising from the dead, and that it was in those events that their deepest hopes, what they'd longed for, was fulfilled, that the cross was the thing that would draw all of humanity, not just the Jews, not just the Greeks, but everyone, to Jesus. We don't know how these anonymous Greeks reacted, uh, but we do know that while Jesus didn't come to meet expectations of Greeks or Jews, he came to meet our needs. Later, many more Greeks and many more non-Jews would realize that it was through what Jesus did on the cross that their deepest needs and their truest happiness and satisfaction would come, that they would truly see Jesus. In the decades and centuries that have followed, millions upon millions have been drawn to the love of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and have experienced new life. But that experience, Jew and Greek, requires a decision. Jesus ended the conversation this way. He says, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you still have the light so that you may become children of light. Now, there's a lot here that we could talk about. We don't have enough time to do that. But let me just say that what Jesus is saying is that there is a decision that each one of us needs to make, to walk toward the light and toward Jesus or to walk away and into the dark. It's a decision that we can make at any point in time. But Jesus does give a warning. He says, one day it may be too late to make that decision. We all know that life is fragile. But we also know that it is possible to so harden our hearts against God that we are no longer capable of turning toward the light. So in one sense, we're all Greeks. We might come to Jesus interested in a philosophical conversation. We might come looking for the key to political transformation. We might even come looking for a moral code so we can work really hard and please God in some way. But Jesus points us to something very different. He points us to the cross, the place where the Son of God faced the full weight of the judgment of God in order to pay the penalty for our sins. And then he showed us that death was not the last chapter. Instead, he rose again that we might have eternal life. The good news that we have in the New Testament starts with some bad news, and that is that we are more sinful than many of us want to acknowledge. But we are also more loved than we ever dared to hope. 
And it's in that that we can find the hope of eternal life, something that comes to us by grace alone. Let's pray. Father, like the Greeks we've read about today, we would like to see Jesus. And today we have. We know that, it, that uh, like Jesus, uh, or like us, Jesus faced temptations to take shortcuts, but he didn't. We understand that he obeyed even when it might have been easier to find a way out. And for this, we're eternally grateful. May we put our faith in Jesus, the one who is lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And may we give ourselves wholeheartedly to him, knowing that whatever we may lose in this life will be replaced by riches that we can only now imagine. May we walk in the light of his love and turn from the darkness Satan's shadow still casts on this world. And Father, we put our trust in Jesus, the one who is lifted up. In his name we pray, amen.